It's so interesting. There's such a spectrum of monthly rents in Windsor. You know, there are rooms that go for as low as like $300 each. Are you a real estate investor looking to sharpen your skills or a newbie looking to become one? You're in the right place. Welcome to Where Should I Invest? Real Estate Investing in Canada with your host, Sarah Larby. Welcome back. It's Sarah Larby. You are listening to Where Should I Invest? Today's guest is Jacqueline Bang, who's a real estate investor. And we talk about student housing, student rentals. And Jacqueline began investing in late winter of 2021. That was the height of the pandemic. And she found a great way to invest in student rentals and do it very efficiently. So I hope that you guys enjoy the podcast, but if you are interested in student rentals and also how to succeed in tough times, as well as scaling quickly, you are going to want to listen to this podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Please don't forget to leave a rating and review. Jacqueline, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm well, thanks, Sarah. You know, thanks so much for uh, having me. I'm really excited to be here. You know, I, I do have to confess, you know, I almost can't believe that I'm on your show because when I was getting started in real estate investing, I literally binge listened to your show because uh, I wanted to learn as much as I could. Uh, so it is uh, almost surreal to me that uh, you know I'm here today. So I do appreciate the opportunity to share my strategies and insights um, with, with your audience. So thanks. Thanks, uh, thanks for having me. Amazing. I'm excited to have you. I know we're going to have a great show. You're going to provide a ton of insights. And for those of you that may not know, you know, who Jacqueline is, can you, can you share with us perhaps what it is that you do from a real estate investing standpoint? Yeah, so um, I specialize in student rentals, uh, particularly luxury student rentals. So it is a higher end product, so a bit niche uh, in uh, that market. Um, and I actually only got started in real estate earlier this year. And I don't know when this episode will air. So you and I are talking in the fall of uh, 2021. So I closed on my first house in March of 2021. I now have three student rentals and in a couple of weeks, I'm actually closing on my fourth property. So I was able to scale uh, probably more quickly than most because I did get started in real estate a little bit later in life. Uh, so I did have more capital. Um, but um, of course, uh, my recommendation to everyone would be to, to start younger if, if possible, uh, because time is your, your greatest asset, especially when you're um, you know, focused on building wealth. So first and foremost, I want to say congratulations because you've scaled fairly quickly. And I think that no matter what age somebody's starting, at least they're starting and they're getting their foot in the door and that's the most important. But what I find interesting is that you basically started during the pandemic. Yes. <laughs> and so maybe walk us through that because obviously, you know, things got shut down in March of 2020. And then you said, and, you know, I, I don't know what, what you thought or what you were, your, you were, um, what your goals were, but did you want to do this? Like during the pandemic, did you want to do it before? Like, I just, I'm curious what went through your head at that point in time. <laughs> yeah, so my first uh, two houses, or my first two properties, the offers went firm pre-pandemic. So, uh, you know, I got the keys um, during the pandemic. And at the time, you know, that was March and April uh, for those two properties. Uh, no one had anticipated that the pandemic would last as long as it would. So I was like, oh, sure thing. No, no big deal. Um, the interesting thing about buying student rentals during a pandemic that shuts everything down 
is um, that uh, can very uh, quickly and uh, adversely affect your business model. Um, and hopefully what I'll be able to share, um, you know, at least uh, during uh, this interview is uh, some strategies that helped um, me get ultimately zero uh, percent vacancy. Uh, even now, um, you know, I have no vacancy, um, and uh, I predominantly, uh, well, I exclusively invest uh, near the University of Windsor, and that's actually one of the only schools in Ontario that hasn't reopened fully. I think it's only at like twenty percent capacity. So, you know, if you do the right things and you focus on your goals, um, you know, it is possible to, um, you know, not be affected by uh, larger things that, uh, you know, other people I assume might use as a as an excuse to to, to back out. Um, but I felt uh, safe in my investments too because before I went in, you know, I always had an exit strategy. So, you know, I bought properties that were in great enough locations and that I was going to bring up to great enough conditions that they could have doubled as single family rentals if I needed them to. So you had an exit strategy, worst comes to worst mm -hmm. as, as uh, you know, changing the use essentially. So yeah. student rentals, so it sounds like they're all, all four of them essentially are in Windsor. Is that correct? Yes. So when, when everything happened, you had the keys. I mean, March and April of 2020 were scary times. A lot of people were actually delaying their closes and, uh, and we weren't sure what was happening. And so what are some of the struggles, before we talk about your insights, what are some of the struggles you faced being a brand new investor during this time? And not only that, but just having, you know, student rentals, which as we know, the schools, you know, the schools got uh, shut down and, and a lot of people went back home and, yeah. uh, and left, you know, their uh, five or $600 a month uh, room that they were, they were renting. So what was your experience like? Yeah, um, so it's funny that you mentioned that a lot of people delayed uh, closing. I think one of my struggles or things that maybe set me back initially was the fact that I was so new. You know, I didn't know delaying closing was a thing, that it was even an option. And, you know, I was just so green that even when I had to pay the deposit toward my down payment, like I thought that was a bigger deal than it was. Like I was like, I thought it was something where you had to like go to the bank and get like a financial instrument of a certain type, basically wearing a top hat. And my realtor was like, no, you can actually just e-transfer it. <laughs> so um, I think um, the, uh, uh, I, I don't want to say inexperience is, is, is a setback, but because it could be easily overcome when you around yourself, you know, with the right people. Um, but um, I think it was a particularly interesting time to, to jump right in. Um, if I had to do it again, I think I still would. Um, and, you know, I don't want to overquote uh, a very often heard uh, phrase uh, from Warren Buffett, which is, you know, be fearful when others are greedy and be greedy when others are fearful, because that doesn't always apply. You know, when people are dumping GameStop stock because <laughs> they're fearful. That's not when you want to jump into anything like that. Um, but uh, with student housing, particularly in Windsor, there actually was a bit of a dip in the fall of 2020. So I got in just after it as uh, prices had started to recover a little bit. But what I saw there was really an opportunity because, you know, COVID is arguably the worst thing that could happen to the student housing real estate market. And in spite of that, the home prices for uh, you know, student housing rentals or homes that were being used as such were recovering. Um, so I was like, okay, you know what? This is probably going to be a pretty safe asset and a pretty safe investment. Um, the only other thing that I found uh, difficult, and I, you touched on this, was the fact that you know, a lot of kids 
went home. So um, during um, the first uh, few months, you know, I was open to renting to um, you know, young professionals and co-op students, like other people who, you know, aren't by aren't students by definition, but, you know, are looking for that uh, shorter term stay. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Hey guys, I just want to take a quick moment here and pause the podcast to introduce you to one of my favorite contractors, John from Blackjack Contracting Inc. And he has been serving the Niagara, Hamilton and Brantford areas for the past three years and has become the area's legal basement suite renovation specialist. He works with many investors that I know and some newer investors, some more experienced investors, and he converts single family homes into multiple units, as well as my favorite favorite strategy, the Burr strategy. So he's well-versed in those as well to make sure that we can achieve the maximum value of the property and the maximum ARV. He has also completed over 100 units from Brantford to Niagara Falls and everywhere in between as well. They do everything from permitting to the design to the final cleaning before listing our rentals for rent or for sale. And he's also a fully licensed electrical contractor. He's certified with ESA and he will take jobs of all sizes. So no job is too big. He's done a complete guts really from the ground up. So super impressed with his work and what he's been doing for fellow investors that I know as well. So if you wanted to reach out, his website is blackjack contractinginc.ca and you can ask him whatever questions you have. You can also reach out to him Instagram, which is at Blackjack Contracting Inc. And like he says, he knows that investing feels like the biggest gamble of our lives. So when you have Blackjack on your side, the house always wins. I will also add that there is currently a ban as of April 4th on new permits. So he will still actively work to the law's extent and actively work with investors to get projects planned out for when the ban is lifted. So that way you're not necessarily waiting and waiting and waiting. So guys, 100%, I recommend Blackjack Contracting. I will say that finding the right contractor is sometimes a hassle and getting a good one that works with investors that understands the numbers is going to be critical in our success, especially when doing the Burr strategy. And now back to the show. Okay. All right. So it sounds like you were able to pivot, even though you're, you're fairly new. Can I ask, like, where did you get your, your education and potentially your confidence and your mindset to, to be able to keep going in uh, some you know, times where there was a lot of uncertainty, but it sounded, sounds like you, you pivoted and, and you had some backup and you've only really been doing this for the last like year and a bit, which is very, very, you know, I think it's very motivating for anybody listening to this, that you know, anything can happen uh, even in a time of a pandemic. Yeah. So I, um, uh, you know, again, uh, when I was learning about real estate, you know, I binge watched your podcast uh, or binge listened to, and, and, you know, I got my, um, I really jumped into pretty much every available resource. Um, you know, I went to almost every uh, real estate networking groups, webinars, including Right Club, which <laughs> I know uh, you're a co-founder of as well. And um, and uh, there, there wasn't a week that went by where I didn't go to probably two, three different webinars um, in uh, the evenings. And, uh, you know, I read up on all I could. And um, it was really great and valuable to be surrounded by like-minded 
people because there were people investing in a variety of different real estate uh, strategies who were all, uh, you know, affected by the pandemic, you know, particularly people like short term rentals, who I would argue were probably hit harder uh, than even student rentals. And, um, you know, you hear about people, um, you know, pivoting, taking action um, and uh, holding on to their asset which you know provides you with confidence to, to hang on to yours because uh i think what happened in windsor too that led to that initial dip was you had a lot of landlords who um had students move back home and they couldn't afford to carry the properties anymore so you just had a bunch of people dumping houses um and again i did see that as as an opportunity and um i think um having a mindset where um you know, you think that um, these blips are opportunities, you know, really does benefit you um, in, in the long run. Of course, you still have to do your fundamental analysis, the numbers have to work, like, don't jump into every catastrophe because you think it's an opportunity. For sure. And like, obviously, student rentals are a strategy and, and there's pros and cons to every strategy. Why did you decide to, and I think you mentioned luxury student rentals, you know, why that specific strategy when you were, you know, deciding on, you know, do you want to do short-term, mid-term, long-term, you know, the birth strategy, student rentals, how, how did that come about? Yeah, so I, uh, you, uh, you know, listed off all the strategies that I was considering. I was like, oh, maybe I'll do short-term rentals in cottage country or, you know, duplex conversions across Southern Ontario. Um, and what really helped me decide was the fact that student rentals struck a nice balance between high cash flow and the level of involvement uh, I was seeking. So, you know, I wasn't ready at the time or interested in um, being the level of active or involved that short-term rentals required, at least initially. Um, and as far as cash flow is concerned, you know, student rentals generally yield the highest cash flows after short-term rentals because the cumulative total of renting multiple rooms individually for several hundred dollars each uh, will always exceed the rent that you get from renting the same house as a single family home. And uh, I decided very early on that significant cash flow was not only important to me, but I'd almost say non-negotiable. Uh, you know, I wanted that immediate income because appreciation was just too speculative for my liking. Uh, so appreciation is really just uh, a bonus for me. And I've definitely already benefited from it for sure. But I like the stability of having, you know, consistent cash flow because it helps when things like maintenance or, um, or vacancy issues arise and you're not having to dip into your own reserves to, to float your property. And, you know, when I talk about significant cash flow, you know, the average cash flow of my properties uh, is about $1,200 per month. All right. Awesome. So, so obviously, you know, that's a pro I think is, is the high cash flow. And, you know, I think the other pro would probably be, these are students, they're not going to be tenants for life. So you can reset your, your, you know, room rents uh, at one point once, uh, once they graduate or they move out or whatnot. There are some cons. I think one of the cons I can think of, uh, you know, probably would be financing and getting around that. And are you able to share a little bit of your experience with financing? 
Yes, yeah, so that definitely is a challenge. A lot of A lender banks wouldn't touch student housing with like a, a 10 foot pole. And it's largely because they hold very archaic views. You know, when they think of student housing, they don't think of these nice, well-kept, well-maintained, beautiful properties. They think of like Animal House and, you know, frats running amok and like destroying, uh, you know, what are essentially their investments as well. Um, so, you know, it's very, very important that you work with a mortgage broker um, who uh, knows what student housing options, uh, or sorry, what uh, financing options are available uh, for student housing purposes. A lot of B lenders are really friendly. You might just have to put down a little bit more of a down payment, but um, you know this is where the importance of, of your power team comes into play. You know, make sure you don't just work with the first mortgage broker that you come across or the, the mortgage broker that um, is all over your Facebook because you went to university together and now they're posting about you know their their new career, you know, go with someone who has experience in what you're looking to achieve and is able to get you the result that you need. Yeah, absolutely. Team is, is super important for people that are starting out, but also, you know, experienced investors as well. And, and, you know, somebody that can grow with you as you're scaling and as you're adding more to your portfolio and, or, you know, really having more of a complex. I mean, the more, the more you have, the more complex, you know, your, your situation might be in the sense that you've got some corporations, you've got, you know, potentially some in your own names, et cetera, et cetera. So financing is, can definitely be a challenge. Are there any other downsides to student rentals that you've, uh, you'd like to share? Uh, yeah, so um, I touched a little bit on this earlier, um, and um, if, if you're looking to be more passive, student rentals are a little bit more active, one, due to the regular turnover, uh, which again benefits your cash flow, but you do have to retenant more often than you would if you know you were renting to a family or a couple. And they're more active just due to the fact that they're students, you know, they're kids, uh, even if they're master's students, for most of them, this is their first time living somewhere that's not at home or a dorm. They just don't know what things are. You can show someone how to use a thermostat. They'll immediately forget and, you know, something will probably break or they just don't know what stuff is. Um, and it's it's just, uh, again, due to the, uh, the fact that that they're young. So, you know, you may get, um, you know, some more calls or emails or, or, or texts uh, than you would otherwise. Um, but um, the only other uh, con I can really think of is um, you don't have year-round rental windows uh, like you do with most other forms of housing. You know, it's very cyclical because the tenancies generally start on September 1st, January 1st, and May 1st because they have to align with the academic term. So, you know, it's extremely rare that you're going to find students moving in February, for example. So if you miss one of those windows, you're going to have either a vacant room or if you just took possession of a house and it wasn't ready and tenanted by then, then, you know, you'll have uh, increased carrying costs for several months until you can hit the next uh, tenancy window. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a great point. Now, are you putting all the students on one lease as you do this or are you doing a lease by room? Oh, great question. So right now it is lease by room. And that's because I just had to tenant during COVID. Um, but uh, my intention and aim and ultimate goal would be to have, you know, just groups renting out the entire house on a single lease, uh, which would definitely help for further financing as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's like a way that we all get around. Well, I mean, I, I don't do student rentals per se, but, you know, as a, talking you know, from a broad average investor that's doing this, uh, you know, one lease for everybody is, uh, is a way to get around many things. <laughs> so, it makes banks happy. Yeah, for sure. So why luxury? How, you know, how are you defining luxury? I'm just curious, like what makes, you know, your student rentals different? Are you charging mm -hmm. more? Are you providing more amenities? Walk us through some of that. 
Yeah, I am charging more and I really do pride myself on providing, you know, housing that is beautiful, safe and clean and uh, everything I do, um, you know, hits off on, on those uh, criteria. So I provide uh, furnished rentals and uh, they're really nicely furnished too. You know, it's not just like the random stuff that you get from Ikea. Everybody- What do you put in, in them? Can you share? Oh, yes, of course. Yeah. So uh, the living room is entirely furnished. Uh, so that's, you know, like sofa, um, you know, the dining room is furnished. Um, so uh, dining table, uh, seating, um, uh, you know, like coffee table. Um, and for the individual rooms, uh, I provide uh, beds, um, bed frames and desks. Um, and uh, again, yeah, they're not like the generic stuff that you would uh, see in most other houses. So it's, it's better for the tenant uh, in a variety of ways because you know it's they don't have to worry about moving all their stuff in or buying new stuff, um, but it's better for you too because you know when you scroll through all the rental listings for student housing, you know having really nice things helps your place stand out. Helps you know justify and uh, warrant the, the higher rents. Um, another way in which providing furnishings is better for you though is um, you know you don't have to worry about kids moving in their big bulky items, scuffing up your walls. You know you're just like repatching drywall every ter- tenant turnover, um, and um, you also um, you know constantly have a nice place to show perspective tenants, which you will always have because there will be a natural turnover due to the fact that they're students. So uh, if you leave students to buy their own things, it's not going to be as nice as what you buy because they're the ones that are going to go buy the IKEA lack table that every other house has because, you know, it's all that they can afford. And, 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 and you know, that's totally fine. But, you know, you want to consistently be able to provide a wow factor for other people who are coming to check out your property as prospective tenants. Yeah, for sure. So you're getting you're getting nice furniture. It sounds like you're doing the living room. Like, are you providing things like TVs and you know forks and knives, or is that like some of the stuff that they bring in themselves? Yeah. So the, generally, they bring their own utensils. If there's anything that's like leftover and um, you know it's not gross or anything, you know I'll just uh, leave it behind. So there's just extra cooking stuff. Um, some of my properties do have uh, smart TVs provided as well. So um, it's a uh, it's a really great way to, when you, when you furnish your house, uh, it's, it's a really great way to not only stand out in ads, but stand out when prospective tenants come in and, um, you know, ensure that um, you impress parents, <laughs> which uh, is really, really important because when you have the higher rents uh, by offering a premium product, you're entering the territory where um, your tenants will probably be students who have their rents paid for by their parents. So your customer in that instance isn't actually the student, it's the parent that you have to impress who's gonna sign off on the higher monthly rent check. Um, and um, you know, providing your own furnishings that, that are nice, first of all, um, you know, really helps um, appeal to, to your customer. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's interesting. So can I, are you able to share like roughly like, and I don't know this market as well, but you know, on average, what's the cost per a standard room and then how much more you're able to get on yours based on, you know, providing uh, a little bit more of a luxury type of student rental. 
Yeah, yeah. So it's so interesting. There's such a spectrum of monthly rents in Windsor. Um, you know, there are rooms that go for as low as like $300 each, but they're either far or, you know, it's like a mattress on the floor and you probably have to bring your own. Um, I would say the average rent in Windsor now probably hover around the five to $600 mark. Anything above $650 um, is really getting up there and I'm getting as high as $700 uh, per room for, for a lot of mine. Um, oh, the other thing, if we can circle back quickly, sorry, uh, to, uh, you know, the oh, advantage okay. of providing your own furnishings um, is again, when you leave students up to providing their own furnishings, what I guarantee you they're going to do for the most part is go to Facebook marketplace, find the cheapest thing. And it's some leftover furniture from some other student selling in another student house. And that's where you run the risk of having like cockroaches brought in. Or, As you were like, saying that, that's exactly what I was thinking. I was thinking <laughs> <bugs>. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's a reason why that's on the street and Windsor in particular has this weird submarket where you just have people driving up and down the street in pickup trucks picking up all of the discarded furniture off the side of the road and then cleaning it up as, at least as best they can and then selling it on Facebook marketplace and you know as a property owner you don't want that <laughs> in your home uh, it's going to cause you a lot more headaches down the line with you know pest control and things like that so just invest a little bit more uh, to provide your own furnishings um, you know again it's going to command the higher rent but it's going to be better for you in the long term too because you're not going to have to deal with that headache yeah, absolutely. I think in the beginning too, you mentioned some insights and some things that you learned along the way. I mean, obviously that, that was, you know, definitely a good one there, but like, if you had to pick like, you know, as, as you've been doing this and, and you're going on to your fourth, you know, what are some tips that you could share that are like actionable or just like, you know, heads up, make sure that you don't do this or you do this. So anybody listening can, you know, really take some things away. Yeah. Um, this is true of any type of rental housing one can provide, but, you know, never compromise on safety. Um, fortunately, I haven't had an incident in which anything has like happened to me, but um, I will not sacrifice the safety of, of my properties, even if it does lead to additional um, like delays or anything like that. So, you know, a clear example I can think of as, uh, you know, when I took possession of my second house um, a couple days in, I realized there wasn't a single smoke alarm in the entire house. Um, and this was a home that was previously being used as a student rental. So I was like, oh, dear Lord, like, you know, people were living like this and, you know, heaven forbid anything happened. And, you know, that was one of those moments where I could have, you know, just gone to Katie and Tyre and picked up a couple of smoke alarms for like 50 bucks each or whatever. But uh, like that just wasn't good enough, you know, so I brought in a licensed electrician and I installed the interconnected alarms, you know, so if the smoke alarm goes off in some portion of the house, it rings all throughout the house. There's no chance that someone will miss it. Um, and um, I've learned that, um, you know, stuff like that is really important, not only because it gives you peace of mind and, and you're ensuring the safety of your tenants, which is also really important, but um, people really appreciate that. Uh, so I encountered significant delays because I did that because, uh, you know, it was during COVID. So my electrician had to come and, you know, there were holes in the walls because he had to run the wires, but I couldn't patch up the holes and finish painting until the, the um, ESA inspection was complete. So, you know, it, it delayed a whole bunch of other things that I needed completed in that house, but it was absolutely worth it because, um, you know, you're able to point out that your house is safer than all the others uh, not only like within the immediate vicinity, but, you know, probably on the market. And, you know, I think 
parents particularly appreciate that, but any tenant in general would be like, oh, okay, no, I appreciate and respect having a landlord who's going to go the extra mile to, you know, ensure that the property is, is, is safe, um, you know, for me um, or, or my family, if you're not in the, the student rental space. Um, so I, I learned very early on that doing the right thing um, does actually have a financial payoff too. So, you know, you can do the right thing because it is the right thing to do. It's better for the tenant, but it's also better for your business. Um, and that's, you know, maybe a bit more like uplifting thing. If I have to think about an actual setback, that's probably actionable. Don't be afraid to fire people. And that's where I, you know, probably was too nice a little bit in the beginning. Um, but, you know, when it comes to like contractors in particular, you know, if they're not meeting the timelines that you need or that was agreed upon or, you know, they're, they're not showing up without messaging you, you know, don't be afraid to, um, you know, fire them and, you know, find a, a team that's worthy of, of your business. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like they say, right, hire slow, fire fast. Or fire. Right. <laughs> but I, I will, I, I do want to add though, like even just from my regular rentals, I like to hardwire the carbon and fire in there because like, even just from a tenant standpoint, like I don't want the tenants to just, you know, if it wasn't hardwired in and just take off the batteries and like, right. <laughs> as you know, they're cooking and burning stuff on the stove, which I'm guilty of doing. I do not cook and I can't cook. So like, I get it, <laughs> but you know, I, do I trust them to like not take it apart? Right. And so I, you know what? The, the other thing is just like every six months, like they have to sign a form saying it was inspected. It was in working order. We checked, you know, all the stuff. So, but yeah, no, that that's huge. And obviously the setbacks with the contractors, I mean, I'll tell you even just like from a birth standpoint, that is mm -hmm. going to be the one thing that will cause you the most gray hair. And if you find some good ones, keep them close, be really good to them. <laughs> Because, you know, ultimately they're, they're far and few between, they're hard to find, but you know, a good one will really, really, really help you move forward and, you know, help you in your real estate investing business. Oh, for sure. And I know the contractor example comes up quite a bit, but that goes for anyone on your power team, right? Like you don't want a realtor who's going to, you know, make you buy a property because you're going to get a nice commission check, but they don't actually know anything about it. So really don't be afraid to fire someone. Like don't feel obligated to work with someone just because they showed you a house or whatever, or if the mortgage uh, agent or broker that you're working with isn't familiar with the financing rules surrounding what you'd like to do, then, then find another one because, you know, there are millions of people investing in real estate in a variety of strategies. So likely what you want to do is possible. Um, so don't let someone else's no be your no. Yeah, for sure. That's really well said. And I do want to go back to one of the things that you had mentioned uh, prior with, you know, $1,200 of cash, cash flow per month. Mm -hmm. There are some additional things that a landlord pays when they are housing students that they may not pay when they are, you know, just giving the keys to uh, a family. And so I was just hoping, Jacqueline, that you could briefly just talk a little bit about the extra expenses uh, that go into your cash flow numbers. Yeah, for sure. Um, so insurance is generally higher and you do want to make sure, of course, that you have the right insurance. You never want to lie to your insurance broker. Um, so it, it is a little bit higher because again, you know, insurance companies view it as a property that's going to have a higher level of wear and tear and or risk. Um, and um, I provide utilities 
um, to my tenants as well. So that includes, you know, uh, water, electricity, uh, as well as internet. Um, and that I think just comes with the territory of being a luxury product. You know, it's part of the sales pitch. You get to tell the tenant and their parent that, oh yeah, you don't have to worry about extra bills. This is your set cost for the month. You don't have to share these bills with people that you don't quite know yet. Um, so, um, I think, um, you know, you do have to budget for, you know, the higher insurance rates as well as uh, being able to include utilities, which average, um, you know, a few hundred dollars a month. Um, I do cap utilities, though, and that's in everyone's lease agreements. Um, and uh, it, it is at a very generous level. So it accounts for the possibility that there might be a significant leak. So, you know, if they're exceeding my utilities cap, and they've really, really done something, they probably like left the bathtub on for like three days. Um, but, um, you know, so that's an example of like them leaving the windows open with a heat blasted in the middle of February, you don't want the abuse. So yeah, right. like, it's smart that you cap it. Right, right. And, and that's what helps them learn, too. And if someone does that, it's not out of malice or anything. It's just that they're young and they don't know any better. Or you didn't grow up in a household um, where your parents yelled at you for leaving the lights on all the time. Um, so you do want to provide utilities, especially for a premium product, but you do want to hedge that as well. Um, and I think I took the uh, capping approach too. And that came from listening to, um, you know, a whole bunch of podcasts and attending webinars. And I recall another uh, student housing investor saying that uh, she had an insane electricity bill one month because her students decided to host like a weekend long beer pong tournament in the garage and they heated it the entire weekend with space heaters. So, <laughs> so you can do that. You're just going to have to pay for it. But this costs, you know, my cash flow still comes in at those numbers, you know, after accounting for all of them. That's interesting. What about like snow and grass cutting? Like how do you handle that? Oh yeah. So I outsource that as well. So um, I have some. That's, ex- that's one of the expenses. Now are you self-managing or do you have a property manager? I am self-managing right now. Can I ask, like, I don't need to know exactly where you live, but like, how far are you from your student rentals from like a driving distance wise? So uh, that, that answer actually varies. So what I did when I bought my first house was I actually house hacked and I relocated to Windsor and I lived with students for probably the better part of, of uh, the year. Um, and, uh, you know, that uh, was, you know, for someone who's from downtown Toronto in her mid to late thirties, living with a bunch of college kids for a variety of reasons is probably not ideal, but it's also, you know, one of those things that, uh, you know, just come with the hustle, like, you know, like you house hack, this is going to be better for you. You know, you save extra money and uh, there was no better opportunity for market research than what I had. And I got really lucky in that, um, you know, I had really great, tenants slash roommates that that entire time we've actually kept in touch i think we're friends um, but um you know after i moved out of that house as i started scaling um i was within just a couple of blocks from the other houses um but now i'm actually managing uh fully remotely from toronto and the fourth house that i'm just about to close on in a couple of weeks i uh bought without i haven't seen it yet i have in person <laughs> my my team has gone to check it out and uh i'm i will see it when i get the keys a, a trustworthy, investor-friendly realtor is going to be key, as well as a good contractor and uh, inspector to be able to do the walkthrough. So that's cool. Congratulations. What's next for you? Um, so actually, the fourth property that I'm about to get, that's going to be um, 
my diversification away from student housing. Um, but it's exciting on a couple of levels because it is another space that I did want to get into and that's small multifam. So this is a duplex. Um, and um, I'm still going to predominantly focus on student rentals. You know, fortunately, it's continued to work out uh, quite well, knock on wood. Um, but, um, you know, I did want to get into multifam uh, just to not have all my eggs in one sub asset class the other reason oh sorry go ahead i think that's smart because like here here's the thing right in in 2021 almost 2022 there is a lack of deals going on right now and (laughs) you know i think three or four years ago it made sense to pick a strategy and i'm not saying not to do that but you you know pick a strategy stick to it and go and go and go with that same strategy in that same area but realistically it's not that easy to do it in a market that has no inventory. Right. So sometimes if you want to get into the market and the deal makes sense, I I actually tend to agree with you. And I used to be a big proponent of saying, stick to the strategy, stick to the strategy. And and by all means, you can stick to a strategy. But like you said, if something else comes up, that's not a student rental, but it makes sense. You could dabble in something else, just know how to run your numbers and know the pros and cons. Every strategy has them, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, And the other reason why um, this acquisition is particularly uh, exciting for me is uh, it's my first foray also into the world of private money, which again, like, has a bad reputation outside of the world of real estate investing, but it's what truly helps you scale. It helps you grow. So what I did was I got a blanket second mortgage on my two other properties um, or two of my other properties. And now I have a down payment for this duplex. So, um, you know, creative creative financing. Yeah. You were saying it (laughs) is is the way to do it. That's awesome. Yeah, like I'm pulling my own money out and essentially recycling it so I can continue to grow, continue to scale, uh, continue to get that cash flow. And um, I think, uh, you know, real estate is, you know, I I saved up all my capital through investing in stocks, which I still firmly believe is uh, one of the greatest like accumulators of wealth. But I do believe that real estate is the greatest accelerator of wealth, you know, where else can you take your money and essentially use it over and over again to acquire more assets. Very cool. Jacqueline, I mean, we can keep talking forever. I mean, I love your energy. You've got, you know, even in a short year and a half, like you've got so much insight, so much knowledge. I really appreciate it. And, and thank you for sharing. That was awesome. The next part of the podcast is the lightning round. I'm going to ask you five questions. Everybody gets the same ones. Are you ready to play? I am. And again, I know I fangirled over being on your show earlier, but you know, I've heard this enough, so I can't pretend to be surprised that what the lightning round questions are. So it's not really lightning if I've had months to think about it. <laughs> I wonder if I should just throw like a wrench in and just ask you three <laughs> new other questions. <laughs> There's a new question. I just like sit here stunned. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, all right, cool. This week's lightning round is brought to you by Megan Chomut. If you're looking for a great financial advisor to add to your team who actually understands and incorporates real estate as part of your overall plan and gets your money working for you, you can reach out to Megan at meganchomut.com forward slash Sarah. And also she's offered for my podcast listeners to provide you with a free customized individualized 90 day game plan for getting ahead. So to get that, go to meganchomut.com forward slash Sarah. That's M-E-G-H-A-N-C-H-O-M-U-T.com forward slash Sarah. And now back to the show. Question number one, what is your favorite real estate investing book? I have to say rich dad, poor dad. And I know that's such a common answer, but it's because it provides such a tremendous level of insight, especially surrounding the fact that, you know, the rich 
acquire assets, um, while the poor middle class acquire liabilities that they think are assets. Um, and, uh, you know, reading that really changed the way I thought about real estate. Um, because before I thought, you know, the only way you could be successful in real estate or even get into it was if you were going to be a flipper, because that's all oh, that's on TV, for example, yeah. or you had to be some multimillionaire, because how else could you possibly own two or more houses? <laughs> and, uh, you know, the fact that, um, you know, Rich Dad, Poor Dad talks about it, not only, um, you know, as an asset, but one that, um, you know, can produce money for you in a very productive uh, way, um, you know, really changed the way that, that I thought about it. And, you know, then I was like, oh, okay, yeah, let me, let me look more into this buy and hold thing instead of, uh, you know, what HGTV, uh, you know, makes look glamorous, which is buying like, you know, decrepit houses and having super attractive people complete renovations <laughs> under unrealistic timelines. With un unrealistic budgets and unrealistic, yeah. like, <laughs> the numbers don't work either. Like they don't work <laughs> costs or any of that. So yeah. <laughs> awesome. All right, cool. Great answer. Number two, this doesn't have to be real estate particularly, but do you have a favorite podcast? Uh, yes. Um, so in the real estate space, I listen to yours and Andrew Hines, but my favorite non-real estate investing podcast is NPR's Planet Money, uh, which is very economy and, and money focused. Um, maybe I'm just thinking about money all the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, it, it takes the ability to educate yourself. And I will say kudos to you for taking action because a lot of people will educate and educate and learn and learn and they don't, don't go and do anything about it. So regardless, you're, you're reading and you're, and you're listening to these podcasts and you're going out and you're executing, which is amazing. Question Thank number you. three, what do you do for fun aside from anything to do with money and real estate? <laughs> uh, well, in a pre-pandemic world, I loved to travel. And, and I guess I still do. Uh, I'm just kind of waiting for a lot of the restrictions to loosen up. But, um, you know, before COVID hit, I was probably taking an international trip every three weeks. Uh, I've been to more than 50 countries around the world. Um, I've been to every continent except Antarctica. Um, so, uh, I, you know, if, if you had asked me that, you know, a year and a half ago, it'd be, oh, travel for sure. I haven't had the opportunity to do that. So what am I doing for fun now. Um, honestly, it really is real estate and all the things that come with learning about it. Um, I've become handier than I ever thought I would ever be in my life. Uh, you're like, I can hang drywall. I can't hold it myself wow. though. It's really heavy. But <laughs> so. that's, that's impressive. I will never, I'll never be able to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but you could if you, if you wanted to. <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. I probably wouldn't even bother trying. I'd be like, uh, but but it's awesome. Like, I mean, hey, why not, right? Like, if you enjoy yeah. it, that's really cool. All right. So, question number four: If you lost all of your assets and your money tomorrow, how would you start again? Well, that would be the biggest learning lesson I could ever have in my lifetime. Because if I lost all my assets and all my money, then I must have done something significantly wrong. Um, but if I were to start again, um, I would uh, take the same approach I did. Whereas, um, you know, instead of just saving in a lame quote unquote high interest savings account, you know, I would, uh, you know, invest my money in. Um, stocks, um, because even the most boring market index funds, like the S&P 500, the Dow, NASDAQ, um, you know, like you'll greatly outperform uh, in terms of your returns, um, you know, any savings account that any bank could provide you. And once I had enough for a down payment, I would jump right back in to real estate again. And I would be very conscious of what I did to lose everything because <laughs> I would eliminate repeating that step. Amazing. All right. And last question, number five, 
somebody has $50,000 and they want to get started, how would you recommend they spend their money? I would recommend house hacking. Yeah, I have no regrets about my time house hacking. And it is the easiest way to get in with limited capital because you can put as little as you know 5% down. Uh, you have someone else or other people covering your mortgage for you. Um, and that's probably the, the easiest and, and fastest way to, to jump right in. And that's a better use of you know, your primary residence uh, from a financial standpoint than having a super expensive house that you're just living in that's not generating anything for you. Amazing. Awesome. That was the lightning round, Jacqueline. Thank you for playing. Where can my listeners reach out and find out more? Uh, probably, uh, Instagram would be the best. Uh, so my username is bang. So B A N G, like, I guess the sound. So it's bang, bang travels. Um, and, um, yeah, feel free to follow me, shoot me a DM. I love to connect with other investors. Um, and yeah, that'd probably be the best place to find me. Amazing. Jacqueline, thank you so much. You are awesome. Thanks for all your insights, your knowledge. And it was a pleasure connecting with you and getting to know you more. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Sarah. Really, really appreciate it. Hey guys, before you go, I wanted to ask you a question. What's stopping you from starting or growing your own real estate investment portfolio? I know for me, before I started, I had plenty of reasons and at the time they all seemed very valid, but as I started my journey, these reasons slowly fell away and eventually only one reason remained. What was actually stopping me was having a proven, actionable, repeatable system. I didn't have that. And the way that was going to change was by investing in myself, learning, listening, and looking for ways that worked. And also, most importantly, discovering what didn't and not making those mistakes again. Fast forward to today, I now have a proven, repeatable series of action steps that has enabled me to build my seven-figure portfolio consisting of multiple homes, and I'm able to manage that in two to three hours a month. Is that something that you would want? Well, I've actually taken all the knowledge I've accumulated and put that into a comprehensive step-by-step online program. It's called Rise, and it's a program that will help you from where you are now to where you want to be faster and with less of the headaches that I had. So it consists of all the templates and the resources that I use, plus over 40 instructional videos that you get lifetime access to for just a small one-time investment. And, you know, my recommendation is to make the time now to invest in yourself and grow your portfolio to seven figures so that you can bring your retirement dreams closer. If you want some more information about Rise, just go to sarahlarby.com forward slash R-I-S-E to access more details and book your spot. Thanks so much for listening to Where Should I Invest with your host, Sarah Larby. Make sure to listen in next time. We'll catch you on the next episode of Where Should I Invest.